Right, so as Paul said, pitching on Christian hope this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm going to get a little bit vulnerable. Um, I hope that's okay. Um, but I just want to be real about something of my own story, something of my own journey, because I trust that, that God can, can help you through that. Um, so you know, if I could just pray. Father, I thank you so much that you're the living God and that you speak through your word and that it is your purpose and your intent to speak to your people this morning. Father, I thank you that you love these people so much, Jesus. I thank you that you want to speak to your sons and daughters. Oh, God, would you just come in and open hearts, open minds, open lives to the influence of your grace, your powerful word, Lord, which can change us in an instant, Father. And also to the, the long-term process of change, Father God, that it's, it's not always just an instant thing, but there is, there's a long-term trajectory of obedience, of submission to your word in our lives that brings growth and change, Father. Help us to embrace all that you want to do in us this morning in Jesus' name and help me to be faithful to you, Lord. Great. So, I can't put a finger on exactly when it happened, but I was going through my prayer journal from last year and it was sometime around the middle of last year that I began to notice it. It was a growing sense of hopelessness and despair like a malignant tumor growing in the murky depths of my heart, feeding on what my eyes continually saw and what my ears continually heard around me. And I don't know about you, but I'm very prone to believing circumstantial evidence. And as someone who's followed Jesus for a while, this kills me because I know that I should know better. But for some reason, after, even after all that I've seen and experienced of God, I'm still vulnerable to what is going on around me and in me. And there's only so much bad news that I can take. And so sometime last year, I'd reached a point where it just seemed relentless. A number of people close to me going through great suffering, a world around us just seemingly falling apart, trials within and without. Every news article you read exposing more about the, the fraught, rotten core of that government that's running this country. The greed that's wrecking our country and the lives and futures of countless people. And just stuff piling on, conflict and family stuff and pressures, business, finances, and then sleeplessness and the disruptions of young children and frustration at my own sin and weakness, at struggling with the same things over and over again. And at points it seemed that I was constantly being confronted with the sheer ugliness of human sin and its devastating effects. And it reached a point where I began to lose heart. And as a result, I found myself coming face to face with an experience of two of the most unbearable words in the English language, after which I've titled this morning's preach, Two Unbearable Words. And those two words are no hope. It's true that human beings can endure untold suffering. We can endure almost anything as long as we have hope. A mother can endure the indescribable pain of labor because of the hope of the life that is coming. A prisoner in a concentration camp can endure and survive extreme suffering as long as they have hope that things can change. Hope that can see an ultimate meaning and purpose in the suffering. A couple can endure separation as long as they have the hope that they'll be reunited. But to lose hope, to lose heart, to fall into despair, to reach the point where you feel like the best option is to just curl up and die is an awful, awful thing. 
You see, our enemy, Satan, lives in a constant state of despair because he knows that the choices he has made to reject God and become his own God have utterly destroyed any chance of hope for him. And in his hatred for God, he hits back at God by seeking to bring God's children into the same place of despair and hopelessness. Because he knows he's going down, in his perverse anger, he wants to take as many of us down with him as he can in a final act of hateful rebellion against God's glory. And one of the main ways he does this is by speaking lies into our hearts and by making those lies seem so convincing and appealing because they just feel so true. And then infiltrating the stories that we tell ourselves by getting us to make agreements with those lies. And so how does this work? He'll suggest a lie to you. Scripture calls him the father of lies, together with a bunch of evidence as to why it must be true. Something like, you're so useless, you'll never amount to anything, or people can't be trusted, they always let you down. And in that moment, if you think in your heart and you make an agreement and say, yeah, I'm useless, I'm no good, you're making an agreement with that lie. Or if you say to yourself, I can't let anyone in, I will shut my heart down. You are thereby giving him a foothold to speak into your life, into your very identity. And you're giving him license to operate where he has no business operating. Once that happens, the lie and the wrong belief that now have a hold on your heart begin to operate, begin to bring forth their rotten fruit, which ultimately will manifest in sinful, self-destructive behaviors and words. And so it happened that as I was drowning in the sense of hopelessness, the Spirit of God graciously began prompting me to press into and grapple with this thing called hope that the Bible speaks so much and so frequently about. And this is where the words of Scripture are so essential. We have to go there. When the enemy's lies are broken in, when we have allowed them to capture our minds and hearts, the only thing that can bring us back again is the truth of the eternal word of God. I'm so grateful that at the time I came across a message or sermon by John Piper titled, What is Christian Hope? And this morning's preach has largely been shaped by the truths that he shares as I've grappled with them in my own journey and as I've learned to fight for hope in my own life. So first, I want us to look at the nature of Christian hope and how it contrasts with our everyday normal use of the word hope. Then I want to look at where do we find hope. And finally, I want to look at the necessity of fighting for hope and how we practically cultivate and fight for hope in our lives. So very simple. Firstly, the nature of Christian hope. Consider with me how we conventionally use the word hope in our everyday conversations. When we use the word, we're usually expressing an uncertainty, aren't we? We say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope this happens. I hope that I get this job. I hope that my son gets his degree and finally graduates this year. I hope that Julius doesn't win any more seats in this year's election. I hope that the Springboks win the World Cup this year. And so we see that our understanding of the concept of hope is shaped by uncertainty. It is most often used as an expression of something that we wish to happen, but of which there is no certainty that it actually will happen. 
by contrast, when the Bible speaks of hope, it is almost the exact opposite. It's used in almost the exact opposite way. According to John Piper, Christian hope is when God has promised that something is going to happen, and you put your trust in that promise. Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. Therefore, Christian hope, hope with a capital H, if you want to contrast them, one's got a big H and one's got a small H, is not defined by uncertainty, it is defined by absolute certainty. I think the John Piper quote is up there. Christian hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. That is so beautiful. Let me ask you this. Are you living right now with a confident expectation of God's goodness? Can you honestly say with conviction, as David the psalmist said, said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. From Psalm 23. Let's have a look at some scripture on this concept of hope. Won't you please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Have you got it up there, Adele? Thank you so much. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll go from verse 10 to 20. So if you don't have a Bible here, you're welcome to just follow on the screen. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm just reminded of that beautiful song, Cornerstone, that we rang this morning where we have this hope that goes in, an anchor for the soul. So let's go back to verse 11 quickly. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So the writer here is encouraging the Hebrew church to persevere. And he's recognizing that to do so, it is absolutely necessary for them to grasp the full assurance of hope. Another word for assurance is guarantee. And so persevering as a follower of Jesus is impossible without this kind of hope. Now it's important for us to realize that as believers in Jesus, we often have uncertain hope and certain hope 
at the same time, and we need to hold them in tension. It's not wrong to have uncertain hope. For example, we may pray and hope for deliverance from a present trouble and not know if, when, or how God will answer our prayer. But while we pray, we also know that God will ultimately deliver us and that our eternal destiny is totally and utterly secure in Christ. Though our circumstances are uncertain and however God chooses to respond to our prayers, we know for certain with full assurance that he will work all, good, all things together for the good of those who love him. Romans eight twenty eight tells us. And so going further with the Hebrew scripture, we see that the writer is at pains to prove that while we deal with uncertain hope in our daily lives and circumstances, it is essential that we base our lives on the certain hope of God's promise that we can confidently expect. Which brings us to the second point, where do we find hope? And so as Paul mentioned in his outstanding message on anxiety last week, This present time that we're alive in is not the only time that the world has seemed swathed in darkness. Throughout history, the people of God have faced tyrants and persecutors, famines and wars, disease and death, opponents without and opponents within. But there's also a very real sense today that the world is growing increasingly dark and hostile. As a father of young children, I frequently feel sick to my stomach when I consider the kind of world that they find themselves growing up in. More and more, people's hearts are growing faint with a lack of hope as the idols that they have trusted in come crashing down around us. Therefore, it is absolutely critical that we as followers of Jesus know where to go to find true hope. I say true hope because there are many things that offer us false hope, aren't there? Many are looking for a political solution to give them hope, as evidenced by the wave of so-called ramaphoria that swept across our nation in the first half of last year where our new president was elevated to almost Messiah-like status. And so many of us felt a renewed hope that he was going to be the one to turn our ailing country around. This is a misplaced hope. And we all know it didn't take long for disappointment to set in. But the heart's idols die hard, don't they? Even now, the proliferation of pundits and analysts making forecasts and speculating about what will happen to South Africa after the elections in 2019 betray where our hearts are looking for hope. Many are looking to economic indicators for hope. Many are looking to technological solutions and human ingenuity to bring about a better future. And these things have their place, don't get me wrong. Many are hoping in the indomitable human spirit to win out. I'm not holding my breath. You see, like faith, hope depends on its object. And hope is false when we look to something or someone that cannot fulfill it. Psalm 33, 17 reminds us that a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Now, at 36, nearly 37, I haven't been around all that long, but I have seen enough in my years on this planet to fully convince me that the lasting and unshakable hope our hearts long for simply cannot be found in politicians, in political solutions, in economic solutions, in technology, or anything else under the sun. So where then can we find a true, heart-sustaining, joy-bringing, life-giving, lasting hope? Have a look with me at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, in which he penned some of the most enduring words of hope ever written. We're going to look in chapter 8. 
from verse 18 to 25. He writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So stunning. And it reminds me of this, this famous quote by C.S. Lewis where he said, if you find yourself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. Our desire for hope, friends, is a longing that no thing or person or experience in this world can ever fully satisfy. And this is because God has made it so in order to protect us from the heartbreak and despair of giving our hearts to anything else besides the one who can deliver. Because hope is only sure when it rests in something or someone absolutely able and willing to fulfill it, it follows that the promises and character of the everlasting, unchanging God are the only sure foundation for our hope. We're still in Romans, but would you please turn with me to chapter 4 and verse 16 to 21. Paul again writes, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. When he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so Paul here gives the example of Abraham, the forefather of our faith. The one who's been known for thousands of years as believing Abraham. Because he was willing to stake everything on the promise and faithfulness of God. Abraham, as we read, had some very compelling circumstantial evidence that could easily have driven him to despair and doubt, to lose hope that God's promise could ever be fulfilled. His own body, finished, 100 years old. His wife, barren, unable to have children. To human eyes and reasoning, 
Childbirth was a total impossibility for these two. But then, who did Abraham listen to? Where did Abraham place his hope? As we read earlier in Hebrews 6, Abraham, the friend of God, believed God. Believed the promise of God, which he confirmed by swearing an oath on the highest authority possible, his own eternal character. And wonderfully, gloriously, every single one of us sitting here in this community of faith today is a fruit of God's promise to Abraham and Abraham's hope in God. So to summarize, trusting in the wrong things leads to growing despair. By the same token, trusting in the character and promises of God leads to sustained and lasting hope. Friends, who is the God that you worship? Are you fully convinced, are we fully convinced that God is able and willing to do what He has promised? On whom are you staking the hope of your heart this morning, this year? As we sang this morning, Jesus Christ is the only cornerstone, the only worthy object of our hope. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And then thirdly, lastly, fighting for Christian hope. We need to know this, guys, that hope is not automatic. Because we're leaky vessels, because we live day in and day out in a fallen creation, a world that has rejected God, And that's why this hope must be fought for. As we saw earlier, unless hope stays alive in our hearts, we will not persevere. We will lose heart. So how then do we practically cultivate and fight for this hope? Again, I want to look at the words of Scripture, specifically those of the Psalms, because they are deeply instructive for us today in this fight. Psalm 42 stands out as some of the most powerful literature ever written on dealing with despair and depression that dangerous duo that frequently come knocking, came knocking at the psalmist's own door. So these words, penned by the sons of Korah, echo down through the ages and beat as strongly and vibrantly today as ever in the hearts of the redeemed children of God. Psalm 42, I'm just going to read verse 1 to 5. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad songs and shouts of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so firstly, we see that the author, finding himself in a place of mourning, of desperate longing and depression, a place where God seems absent from his world, is talking to himself. He's addressing his own soul. 
Your soul is comprised of your mind and your will and your emotions. And so this alone is incredibly helpful and instructive for us. It highlights the fact that we need to be aware of whose voice we are listening to. Because the voices we are listening to are directly correlated to who or what we are finding our hope in. The biggest danger to me when I'm in a place of despair is that I start listening to myself. I start listening to the negative and destructive and despairing thoughts that issue forth from an exhausted mind, a crumbling will, and confused, wounded emotions, which, as I said earlier, are often riddled with agreements with the lies of the enemy. Rather than talking to myself with the inspired words and truths of Scripture, the Word of God. And so recognizing this, the psalmist begins to fight for hope. He begins to preach to himself. He begins to align his self-talk with the eternal truths of God's word. He begins to remind himself of the character and person of God who has never failed nor forsaken him. The God who remains faithful. The redeemer God of the gospel who has set his love upon us and whose presence never leaves us. We need to fight for hope, friends. We need to preach the truth to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. This last weekend, we went away as a family for a few days for a bit of holiday, try to get some rest in before the year sort of kicked in and kicked us in the teeth. And so we went to Betty's Bay um, and, uh, you know, we got there on Thursday and I don't know what it is with us and timing and planning holidays, but um, anyway, the day after we arrived, as many of you will know, it was the day that those crazy fires sort of sparked up again and just ripped through, through the town, just fanned into a frenzy by northwest winds of close to 100 k's an hour. And so we spent the whole day on edge, you know, sort of gazing out the window, watching these flames coming down the mountain, threatening to devour everything in sight really terrifying speed. It was, it was incredible. And so not sure if we should evacuate or not. Uh, I sat looking at this and I took to prayer and journaling. And as I did so, the events, the events unfolding before me became a kind of parable of a far greater reality. And I just want to share with you a small excerpt of what I, what I wrote in my journal as God began to speak to my heart about the hope of the gospel with that dramatic backdrop. I wonder about the timing of this, and I thank you that you are the God of hope. As I stand here and watch this terrible disaster take place before my eyes, these flames that can consume life and limb, and watch with hope for the rain clouds, and consider our world that is burning physically, spiritually, in every way, it strikes me as a significant parable of how much the hope of the gospel means. That we were those under the sure judgment of the eternal flames for our sin. A raging, fiery tempest that no water can quench. Unable to save ourselves. Powerless. Helpless. Dead in our sins and transgressions. But that because of Jesus we have this hope. That God will save us. That the Most High in mercy will reach down and deliver us. That the vile and sin-stricken world of our making will be raised to the ground until nothing but ashes remain. And we will be spared, we will be saved, we will be delivered, and you will finally make all things new. Oh, to have hope right now, what a blessing and a privilege that we can know with assurance that our God has poured out and is pouring out saving, redeeming grace on his people, and that he has made Jesus the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice that takes away wrath, 
the burnt patch of ground where no flames of judgment can ever reach us again. Oh, praise to the King of Kings. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. Friends, let us never forget that because of this gospel, hope is what we have to offer to the world. Faith, hope, and love are described as the greatest things in our belief system, but they're intimately connected. Without hope, we cannot love. Without hope, we cannot and will not engage with this dark and dying world and hold out to them something of infinite value that their hearts are desperately longing for. So I love that Philippians 2 scripture where it speaks about holding out the word of life to a, to a generation that is perishing. So hope is an act of war. No one puts it better than John Piper, good old J-Pip. If our future is not secured and satisfied by God, then we are going to be excessively anxious, he says. This results either in paralyzing fear or in self-managed greedy control. We end up thinking about ourselves, our future, our problems, and our potential, and that keeps us from loving. In other words, hope is the birthplace of Christian self-sacrificing love. That's because we just let God take care of us and aren't preoccupied with having to work to take care of ourselves. We say, Lord, I just want to be there for other people tomorrow because you're going to be there for me. If we don't have the hope that Christ is for us, then we will be engaged in self-preservation and self-enhancement. But if we let ourselves be taken care of by God for the future, whether five minutes or five centuries from now, then we can be free to love others. Then God's glory will shine more clearly because that's how he becomes visible. When God satisfies us so deeply that we're free to love other people, then he becomes more manifest. And that's what we want above all. I'm nearly done. (laughs) Guys, I believe with all my heart that God has spoken this word, hope, into the bedrock of this church, into our very name, because he has called us to be a community that carries his hope to a dark and dying world. At this time in our country, in our world, we as a community of believers in Jesus Christ will fight for hope. We will stand unashamedly on the character and promises of our God. We will continue to love as an act of war, as an act of faith, as an act of hope. I'll leave you with these words from Romans 15 verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound, some translations say, overflow with hope. Father, I thank you for who you are, Lord. I thank you that we have an eternal, everlasting hope that goes behind the veil, Lord. A sure and steadfast anchor for each and every one of our souls, Lord. Father, I thank you that you're the God who brings hope into our despair. And not only that, but you are the God who's called us to bring hope to a despairing world. I thank you for this community, Lord God, for One Hope Church. I thank you for the hope that you've placed inside us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that this year, that gospel would would run forth from this place and from this community, God. It would run forth from our hearts. It would be declared 
in our, on our lips, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our moments of parenting, in our schools, in our varsity classrooms, whatever context you've placed us in and where you've called us, Father, I pray that we would be carriers and bringers of hope, Father, because we have settled, we have established our hearts in the unchanging and eternal word of God, the eternal promises of our King. Father, thank you that we have hope, Lord God. Father, if there are any this morning who are living in a place of hopelessness, I pray you'd meet them right now, Lord. I pray that your spirit would begin to draw them to the eternal, sure, and unchanging promises found in your word, Lord. I pray that you'd surround them with people who can love them through this and speak hope into their hearts again, Father. And I pray that you would use their trial as a testimony, Lord God, where you can bring hope to others through them and comfort and help, Lord. We ask it in the name of Jesus, Father, your great and glorious Son. Amen. Great, guys, we're going to take communion and we're going to sing a little bit more. Just would be great if we can respond to this God of hope by worshiping Him. It's the only fitting response. So I'm going to invite you to come up and get some bread and some juice and then return to your seats and then uh, yeah, you can take communion and, and just celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus, the salvation that we have through what he's done for us on the cross. Amen. Go for it.